if we could just get a biblical perspective on things, it would just so help. And it's the area of spiritual gifts. Now, you're aware, those of you who come regularly, that we don't just pick subject matter and go, let's just go after this because this is the next hot topic. We go straight through Scripture. So when you get to the text, you're already in context, and then you can't avoid it, and you can't spend 65 years on something that has four verses. Well, you could, but it really would be lame. So the intent then is, of course, to be able to address this from a biblical context. Now, I recognize the moment we start addressing this, we're going to actually be met with probably a natural resistance from every one of us for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is there are going to be those who are naturally apprehensive because they've not really had any experience in this particular arena. Uh, primarily because they've been part of a fellowship that's sort of like better safe than sorry and we would rather just pass out and feign death than actually have something happen that seems to be in some way contrary to Scripture. Which, you know, I appreciate the spirit of it, but it can be extreme. On the other side of it, there are those who um, were raised with the idea that as long as it's an experience, it must be true. And so, um, one of my friends who is a pastor in, the, in, um, in Central California, his attitude is we just let it happen and we sort through it at the end, and then we just kind of figure it out and then try to come back the next week. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. Obviously, one of them is some people don't come back the next week, and they have the experience. And, and, and any shepherd that just sort of goes... Let's just let it happen among sheep. Uh, should be a little bit more careful with their sheep. So there, again, there are extremes on both sides. But traditionally, we tend to, set, to think that that's all there is. We tend to think either you're going to be uh, what some people would call charismatic, although I think we all should be charismatic. Uh, and then on the other side of it, we're those who we should be actually truthful and careful, and I think we all should be truthful and careful. Uh, and I have to go back to this text that Jesus uses in John chapter 4, where he tells us that the Father is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. I mean, we kind of love the verse. Traditionally, those that are quicker to quote it are those that would actually rather be more charismatic, to be honest. Uh, it's seldom that you find a person quoting that because they just don't want to see anything happen. But it can't happen that way. But understand that there is this... Well, let me lay this out, and we, we really need to pray because I don't want to even start, you know, get started and look what happens. But there are... One of the beautiful things about faith and trusting in an infinite, almighty God is that there are paradoxes that are laid out before us that we don't have to reconcile. We do not have to actually take these two things and shove them and make them fit together. What we actually can do is say that God is bigger than our math. How could God be completely and absolutely in control and yet man have the responsibility of his own choice, the volition of free will? So somebody that actually would claim to be of a higher intellectual grade, if you will, will tell you you have to choose a side. But you're probably aware of the fact that the, the more that you actually have to force people into these particular sides, it's actually a much smaller-minded perspective. I actually say I believe both. I believe that God is completely in control, and I believe that man is completely responsible for choice. And the reason I came to those conclusions is because I was reading the Scripture, and both were very clear. I did hear someone say that the Pharisees would say who could hold the two intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that they could hold both extremes at the same time without the problem. Yeah, and one, to be honest, the only thing that can actually do that is faith. Mm. Because it's a faith that actually tells us that we're to trust. And by the way, the word faith, pistucho in the Greek, if you will, 
uh, is the word that simply means trust. It's not a fancy word. It's not a word that the church invented. Hey, we need the word faith because that'll be a really good word. It's going to, you know, because it rhymes with so many things uh, up there with purple and orange. Uh, you know, this, the strange part about it is, is that we took a word trust and we said, no, this is really what you need to do. And we can pull from the book of Proverbs because it tells us to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. One of the verses, even if you're a Christian for like a week, you seem to know. To trust in the Lord with all your heart. What's the second one after that? And then in all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. Now, don't miss the point that the way that we actually do the first is the next two. We don't lean upon our own understanding, but rather instead, because God's not a God of Nazis, he's a God of instead of us, rather we should acknowledge him, seek to find him in it. And if I'm not leaning upon my own understanding, well then I may actually be trusting beyond my understanding. That's the crazy part about it. Now that doesn't mean we shut off our understanding, we just don't lean on it. So it's like when someone says, well, how do you explain this? And I said, nowhere in Scripture did God ever tell me I had to explain this. Does God desire every man to be saved? Absolutely. How do I know that? Because it says in 1 Timothy 1, he desires all men to be saved. That's actually literally what it says. I actually believe it means what it says. Will God get what he wants? No. Because not every man is going to be saved. That's clear when Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. That's clear in Matthew 25. But who can resist his will? Now, how do I explain all of those? I don't have to. But I, can, I, I do find this interesting. Those that really do want to argue over a point, I've always found, tend to sit on the favorable side of the point before they argue it. In other words, God hand-selects certain people. They never think they're not selected. They're just going to argue with you over whether you are. Now, the only reason I say that is when we get into the area of spiritual gifts, forgive me for the rabbit trail, when we get into this, I want to look at it from scriptural perspective because if we don't lean on the, on the word that is the, light unto our, the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path, if we do not lean upon God's word on this, we will concede then to experience. But we all can be aware of the fact that experience can be very subjective. And you can be led. And we've actually watched that. Uh, and so we're going to go into two texts. First, we're going to read them through. Because there are two places where uh, spiritual gifts are listed in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. That's actually fairly simple. They're both 12s. There will be, in essence, 17 uh, different spiritual gifts listed in these. I challenge you to look at what you don't find there. For instance, the spiritual gift of worship leading, for instance. Uh, spiritual, and there's a lot of things that people will pull. And go, you know. Now again, we will see different places where positions are listed. For instance, Ephesians chapter 4 where God gave some to be. And I'll talk about apostles, prophets, pastors, pastor teachers, evangelists. And he gives us those for the equipping and the edifying of the saints till we all come to the knowledge and we all come to the unity of the faith. So there is that, but those are positions. But when we actually talk about spiritual gifts, they're listed here. And I want to say this, and again I've got to pray, that there will always be nestled into two things, and you've got to see that, please. One is there will always be an attention towards functioning as a part of the body. In other words, God is not going to give you a tool and then make you a maverick. Fundamental in both cases, we have to see the necessity. And, and the way that it will be played out will be one of two ways. You'll either think you're all that, or you think you're not that at all. So in one case, the eye can look at the, at the ear and say, well, 
I don't need you because I'm not. Right. In the other case, the foot can look at the hand and go, I'm really not, I don't have a purpose because I'm not the hand. And he goes, neither one of those function well. Second thing is that we have to be driven by love. As a matter of fact, the most uh, extensive, exhaustive approach to spiritual gifts is 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. 12, the gifts listed. 14, how they're to be exercised in a corporate setting. We might say in a church setting. Well, that's 12 and 14. What's in between? 1 Corinthians 13. Most of us know that if we've ever been to a wedding. And that should tell you something that the context for 1 Corinthians 13 isn't that like sort of Vivaldi's playing in the background and Disney characters are popping out of the screen. The context of it is, is there is a carnal church that is so abusing the spiritual gifts and the primary reasons are, one, that they're mavericks and two, they're driven by, by carnality, by a competition versus that of love. So pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you for the privilege of taking this time. We seek you, we boldly go to your throne of grace in confidence because we know that we've had a Kohen Gadol, a high priest who has been tempted in every way yet without sin, who has been our perfect illusmus, a perfect sacrifice, a perfect kafir, so that we can approach you knowing that the sacrifice was acceptable. We recognize on Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol goes into the Holy of Holies, the Kaddish Kaddishim, and he goes in, and we know that the gift, the sacrifice was acceptable because he comes out alive again. I understand, Jesus, why you went to the cross, were put in the tomb, and came out alive again. You proved that the sacrifice was enough. I thank you that Leviticus makes clear to us that we can't be perfect in and of ourselves, but we can pick the perfect sacrifice. And in that, we thank you that you have offered us and provided for us the perfect sacrifice in Jesus, your Son. And so we thank you that in the choice you've laid before us, you've made it easy. And in that, we can stand perfect and pure as his purity and perfection is imputed upon us and we come before you not in our own righteousness, which would be but filthy rags, but rather in the righteousness of Jesus. And because of that, we could be clearly the one group in the world that's not self-righteous because we are Christ-righteous. Thank you for that. Now, Lord, as your word comes and is sharper than a double-edged sword, active and living, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the intent and thoughts of the heart, now, Lord, open our hearts and our minds to receive from you everything you want to teach us. We commit this time to you now. Lord, let your word burst open and come alive for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Be the Berean. And I would say don't take my word for it. Take the word for it. <laughs> now, in our handouts, and I need to see them myself to see if I... Do we have <coughs> the book of Romans to start with? Do we have the text? Is it in there? It may not be. Okay, and if not, then I need you to open up your Bibles. How about that? Or your phones, or your apps, or whatever it so be. And we're going to go to Romans 12.
If you need a Bible, we have some over there, and the very awesome Ian is going to step in to do that if you so like. I'm going to read a great deal more than we're going to develop because I want you to see the context. You know, we're London, we understand this. Even though the meat or whatever is in the middle of the sandwich is usually what you name it. In London, the bread seems equally as important. And uh, for whatever reason, if it's the right bread, it makes whatever is in the middle that much nicer. Well, might I say that's the case in our context. Now, Romans chapter 12. By the way, very quickly, it's one of the two. Paul's written, clearly written 13 letters. Uh, people argue over Hebrews. You know, it's usually the first word you read in the, the letter uh, is usually who wrote it. And, you know, it's kind of like when you get an email, you kind of look to see who it's from first before you decide to open it. Well, you know, and you'll say Paul, for instance, or Paul and Sosthenes, Paul and Silas. The first word in Hebrews is, is actually God. So I think that that's fun. But of those 13 letters Paul did write, Two of them were in churches that Paul had never been to. The church of Colossae, which, by the way, had been planted by a man named Epaphras, who was one of Paul's disciples, and the church in Rome. So when Paul is writing the, the letter to Rome, he's writing to a church he's never met. However, he sure knows a lot of people. The last chapter, verse 16, makes that clear. He does know a lot of people there. But he really does write it much like a legal document, and so they often call it the, Christian, the uh, Constitution of Christianity for that reason. But then he really kind of just wants to make sure you have things really, really clear. Uh, just to kind of go at light speed, just to really blow your mind. Consider this. The letter comes in five sections. And because we don't have to get through all of this text, I can take my time at least to make sure you have this. The same way that, by the way, you'll find, if you were, to, if you were from a Hebrew origin and you were heard the number five, what would that lead you to? Okay, but I mean, specifically, if you were to talk to somebody, for instance, a Pharisee, and say, the number five, well, they would go to the Torah, oh, yeah. because of the five books of the Torah, for what it's worth. Consider this. Chapters 1 and 2, Romans, chapters 1 and 2, sin, main focal point. Chapters 3 through 5, salvation, main focal point. Chapters 6 through 8, sanctification, God's setting you apart. Chapters 9 through 11, God is sovereign and smart. And I, I always like to put both in there. And then chapters 12 through 16, service. So it's sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty smart, and service. Daniel, I, I, I could have asked you, but I decided not to put you in here. <laughs> I remember you were back there when we went through this. Right. Now, I just find that interesting because um, in each one of those things, God has a sort of a main point to make. Uh, but in that, consider the fact that when we go through the Torah, we find the same. The original sin in Genesis, salvation in Exodus, sanctification in Leviticus, so God is sovereign and smart in numbers, and then, if you will, preparing you for service in the book of Deuteronomy. So he kind of plays it out. There's also five, the book of uh, Psalms also breaks into five. Have fun with that. Anyways, <clears throat> in all of that, chapter 12 begins our area of service. God puts those in that order, like he does everything, intentionally for good purpose. You are never to go and jump into service without actually reconciling the first four where you're asking for trouble. First of all, we recognize we're sinners. And he tells us, by the way, chapters 1 and 2, as he says, he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God 
to salvation for anyone who would believe. And he goes, because in it, the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith. It's an ablative term. It means from one faith in one thing to faith in another. You move from faith in yourself to faith in God and what he's done. That's the beauty of it. And then he talks about the wrath of God being revealed against the wickedness and godlessness of men who suppress the truth by their own ungodliness. And the whole end of chapter 1 is this downward spiral of those who choose to reject God. And it is an active choice. Chapter 2, he goes from the Gentile to the Jew and he says, well, you're of no, you have no excuse. I mean, these guys could do, are doing this ignorantly, but they are sinning against conscience. You're sinning against the law that you've been raised with. And you can't judge others on it and then commit those things as crimes and think you're going to get away with it. In the end of it all, by the time you get through chapter 2, we're all sinners. We should all go to hell. Chapters 3 through 5, salvation. He goes, well, now that we know that no one's good and nobody can stand righteous in and of themselves, praise God, he provided the sacrifice through Jesus Christ. And so with that, our responsibility is not to muster faith which he'll tell us, by the way, later in Romans, that faith uh, is something that, we are, that every man is given a measure of and that every time we open his word, we get more. But we're to properly spend that trust on Jesus Christ. So that's three through five. Six through eight, now that you're saved, God wants to planted his Holy Spirit inside of you. And now, why in the world would you want to live in the same sins you used to be before? You're, that guy's dead. Stop trying to revive him. God killed him because that guy doesn't transfer well. Your old you will never get saved. That's why God had to kill him and give you a new you. By the way, for me, praise God. You know, it's, you know, so don't drag the old you over the cross. Let God re- make him the architect of your reinvention because he has to be Lord. Six to eight. You get that. Then, well, now that you've got this idea, now that, okay, I'm, I know I'm a sinner, I know that Jesus has saved me, and now I actually start to want what God wants, 6 through 8. And the whole idea of it is walking in the flesh versus walking in the spirit. That's all of chapter 8. It's usually our favorite chapter because it has all these promises. But they hinge on the fact that we need to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. And the idea of it is we no longer walk with putting us first, but we put the Lord first and other people in front of us. That's the idea of walking in the spirit. And that's chapter 8. And now that that's the case, now you're more important and I'm less important because God's taking care of me. So I don't need to. Well, you need to recognize God really knows what he's doing and he's smart. Chapters 9 through 11, God has not fired Israel. He has not abandoned Israel. And he has not destroyed the covenant with Israel. Contrary to what some may say, just read the three chapters. What God has done is he has benched Israel. I've been a coach. I know what it's like to bench someone. You don't fire them. You don't kick them off the team. You put somebody in who can do the job. But if you really think for a moment that somehow Israel has been so irreparably nasty that God bailed on them, how exactly is he still with the church? I mean, just look at the last 2,000 years. Oh, do we, are we any better than that? But if we know that God has never bailed on his covenant, well, then we can be confident he won't with us either. So God has benched Israel, never stopped loving them, never stopped wanting them saved, they never stopped being chosen. They're still on the team. But he has brought in the Gentile because the whole purpose was to be a light to the world so people could come to him. The problem is, is that what we're going to find ultimately is that the Gentiles aren't going to do a very good job either. 
and ultimately he's going to have to come back and do it himself. But when he does, he will restore Israel to that place, not just of prominence, but a place of ministry. We see that in the book of Revelation. In which case, at that point, there should be a party like there's never been. And Jesus even laid out that whole area in Luke when he talks about the prodigal son returning. It's important to recognize that in the end of it all, God has never abandoned that son that left. He's just waiting for him to come home. So when people say, oh, well, this just shows God is sovereign, I'd be like, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, it sure does show that he's sovereign. Does it show that God has, in essence, then sent some into the abyss? Completely the opposite. As a matter of fact, the end of chapter 11, the end of that section is, oh, the depths and the, 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 the vastness of the mercy of God. Strange, when Paul reads through those chapters, the end of it, he goes, man, that is a mercy so awesome. I don't get mercy from God just goes, hit the road, Jeff. But when he's like, look, at you're sitting out because I want more people saved and I'm bringing you in, Paul looks and goes, that is a mercy. <clears throat> wow, that blows my mind. Oh, I love that. And Paul is actually, it's like, it's, it's like Paul is singing at the end of Romans 11. So we've gone from God being sovereign and smart finally to the area of service. And so now, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, mercies, notice again, in light of those mercies, in the fact that what we just saw in those last three chapters is how unbelievably merciful God is, this is how we start to serve. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to the world, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Oh, I, uh, that's why I'm able to succeed. Um, I can read a different version. For I am telling every single one of you, through the grace that has been given to me, not to have exaggerated ideas about your own importance. Do you have more on that? There is. Okay. Oh, uh, I'll, I'll jump in for you, Bob. That was three. But to think soberly? Yeah, he's given to each of us a measure of faith. As we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Did you notice the focus again on the body? <coughs> Susanna? Verse 6. Oh, okay. Having then, <coughs> having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy... Let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. For ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. In our final verse for this section for now, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another.
Notice in our text, in our context, we are looking here at this area of service. And notice in the first three verses that the act of service started not with you and another person, but other than God. It started throw your body at God. That's the idea. Now, it is important to recognize if we got this right, it'll free every one of you up for the ministry God's ordained. Please know this. You're not the artist. You're the paintbrush. And you're not the craftsman. You're the tool. And because of that, you don't have to worry about what God does with it. You just have to be available. You are not the lawyer. You are the evidence. I love that. Materios, in its simplest sense, means to be evidence. We use the term testify from it when it comes in an active sense because the idea of it's part of our evidence pool testifies verbally. Some of it testifies, we call that prima facie, by its existence. For instance, if there was, if Ian was on trial for killing Emily. I know, see, don't worry, this is actually, it's never happened this far. But the day is young. And in that, somehow in all of that, Lois has had the responsibility of defending Ian to prove his innocence. One way of obviously showing that Ian did not murder Emily is for Lois to bring in a living Emily. If she comes walking into the courtroom, you didn't kill her. Well, unless she had one of those cool resurrection things. But let's just avoid that for the moment. Now, that is called prima facie evidence. In other words, its existence, her existence in her present state is testimony. Now, what if the situation were that it was grievous bodily harm and then murder? Well, then she may call her to the stand and ask for her to answer the questions pertinent to that subject matter. Does that make sense? Did he hit you? If he did, with what? You know, she's like, I've never seen the man before today, as far as I'm aware of. You know, and of course, the other side, I'll say, well, now imagine if on the other side of that, Susanna, we're just going to have fun with that. So if we haven't, Susanna and Joan are actually the prosecuting attorneys. How do they shut this down? Well, they have to do one of two things. They have to actually try to prove that you are not in your right mind to answer. They do that often. Or that you really actually didn't experience what you said you experienced. That's the point. Now, you are clearly a key part of Lois's uh, evidence pool. Now, let's say they have a bloody knife. You say, you're welcome. Here's the doctor's report. There are no stab wounds on me at all. That would be nice. You can check the DNA. There are other things that will pertain to it, for which you'll be like, well, well, wait a minute. You can tamper. And again, the reason I say that is, is that we are called to be witnesses, but what we are called to be is evidence. But you are not called to be the convincer, the actual attorney. You're actually called to be the evidence. Jesus' job is to do that. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in the last 10 years, I mean, I've pastored now for over 25. That doesn't make me anything other than older. <laughs> <laughs> but I've watched the church stop evangelizing because they feel like they can't win every argument. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, what if they ask me one of those dreaded Christian pepper spray questions like, who was Cain's wife? Who cares? You're going to stand before God and say, I chose hell because I didn't know who Cain's wife was? I don't think so. 
So if you're available, if you're available, God knows what to do with that. Now there will be those that will say, now here's the scary thing, we want to give testimony, but often we give testimony of what we've never witnessed. Well, great grandpa, he told me this story. Well, yeah, it's a, probably an awesome story and it may very well be true, but you were not a witness of it. But can you testify of what Jesus has done in your life? Because if you can testify, you have a testimony. That's the beauty. Now hear me on this for one moment and then we'll have to get into our text, but I actually... Anyways. My grandmother and grandfather lived on the south side of Chicago. My father played for, the, for a farm team for the White Sox. So we were raised there in the beginning. My grandfather drove a bus for the CTA, the Chicago Transit Authority. It's like song off the top half, and it was just a single-decker bus, because it's Chicago. You're probably aware of the fact that Chicago is riddled with organized crime, and often people who happen to have a lot of vowels at the end of their names. This was such the case. My grandfather was approached by a couple gentlemen from a fairly well-known mob family who asked him, well, asked as a, asked him as a kind, kind term, to move money from one side of the city to the other. From the beginning of his route, they would put it underneath the bus, the carriage of the bus. When he finished his route, they would unload it. My grandfather, in very typical style of our family, was pig-headed and stubborn and said, there's just no way that's going to happen. And they left. Within the week, my grandmother and grandfather had gone to see a show, some live performance. I don't, still don't know what it is. And my grandfather, they lived on the second story, the first floor, if you will. Uh, they, you'd walk into an enclosed area and walk up this light. And up there he thought he heard a noise, so we went up to go and see what it was, and the two men were there, or some men of their sort. And they threw my grandfather down a flight of steps, splattered his brains all over the shoes of my grandmother. She was never the same. She was called to testify. But on their way out, unapologetically, they stared her in the face and said, you saw nothing. And if you know that you saw nothing, nothing's going to happen to you. She had been intimidated to silence. To this day, we have no record of those two men ever getting any justice. You see, they knew that she as a witness was so damning that she was a danger. So if they could intimidate her to silence, it was to their benefit. I think the enemy's been doing that with the Christian church for a long time. If we just don't say anything, then the enemy wins. And you're like, well, there'll be no trouble. If you know what? This is what I've learned about life. Is you get tackled on the bench, even in life. You might as well be out in the field and do something. All of this because of a verse that isn't even gotten us to our text. But because you present your body as a living sacrifice. In other words, what you're not saying is, here's the difference. You're not saying, God, here I am. Aren't you glad you got me? Ready to serve you. 
You say, God, this is your jersey. Put it on and do awesome things. I mean, to this day, I think last year, a sweaty 23 Chicago jersey from basketball just sold for 140 grand. The 23 wasn't spectacular in any specific way. The embroidery wasn't anything magnificent. And it was sweaty and stinky. But it was sweaty and stinky with Michael Jordan's sweat from one of the championship games. And some people still pay for those kind of things. So why not you? Why not when you are retired, when they lay you to rest, that heaven would want to pay 140 grand for your jersey because of what's been done in it? Let's face it, someone else could have worn that. But because the one who wore it made it special. When you present your body and it's present continuous, what it means is do so and keep doing so. The joke is. You know why we have to keep presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice? Because we keep crawling off the altar. So keep presenting. This body's yours. That's my mind, my hands. I can't even tell you how many of our worship songs involve this verse in one way or another. We do so holy and acceptable to God. And God says, he says, this is only reasonable as an act of service. He goes, in light of those last 11 chapters, why don't you do that? Just say, Lord, here I am. I'm not here saying, I'm going to serve you in some amazing way, but I'm actually going to surrender myself to you and you can do what you want to. He goes, well, let me tell you, if you offer your body, there's a couple of things that are going to need to change. Number one, verse two, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind's going to have to be different. But here's the cool part. Did you notice that it's being renewed? In other words, it isn't like you're turning your brain off. You're actually turning it on. It's just turning it on in a new way. Because if I can't do that, I'll actually never be able to prove, acknowledge, properly understand what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay, another side note. <laughs> The will of God. God's special secret plan. Isn't that what so many people teach? God's got this special secret plan today. And today, you were supposed to wear those shoes. And if you don't wear those shoes, God's got a plan. You're going to trip on the other ones. You're probably stepping something. We get this way. And we get into the minutiae. It's the strange part. We get into the minutiae of these strange little details. Do I pick the red shirt or the blue shirt? Because I know if I pick the wrong shirt, I'll spill gravy on it. But the word will is the word solejo, and it simply means pleasure. If we actually realize that what we really wanted was the perfect pleasure of God, what's funny is we'd spend less time on the shirt unless there was something sinful about it. We'd spend more time on the actual things that are important, like my behavior and my attitude. I mean, you could wear either shirt, but having the wrong attitude, neither shirt's the right shirt. And he goes, look, at, you need to be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And from that, you'll actually know if you let God renew your mind, you let God take this thing, people are like, are you being brainwashed? I sure hope so. My brain was so filthy. But it didn't, he didn't wash it and empty it. He washed it and filled it. And as that's the case, well, don't you want to know what pleases him? 
I mean, more than just, I mean, imagine how weird that would be to the world watching us and we're like, I don't know, um, should I go to this, should I, should I do burgers at Five Guys or should I do burgers at Shake Shack or should I do like a pub burger or is that a bad idea? I mean, imagine how the world looks and goes, well, you have a weird relationship with this father of yours where it's like he's got this special secret plan and you're supposed to have like this decoder ring and if you don't figure it out, he kind of, I'm like, well, I have two kids. My kids aren't like that. And if they were like that, that would be a messed up relationship. But I do want them to know what pleases me. Because I want them to know they have a pleasable dad. And I'll tell you, that makes all the difference <coughs> in the world. Even my, and Lois is just getting no Ruthie, that's like sharp as a tack and quite a pistol. She's a 14-year-old. And she is funny as anything. She knows that if she really wants to get me, all she has to do is snuggle in on the end of the day. Hmm. Nothing makes nothing is cooler for me. There's nothing she could do for me that will have a greater impact than her just being with me. And I'm an evil guy, just like you. But I can't imagine that the father is any different but better. Because look at by the grace given to me. Stop thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Stop thinking you're all that. Think soberly. And by the way, he'll say at least 13 different times in the New Testament to think soberly. That's really important to me because the Holy Spirit writes for me to think soberly. I find it weird to think that he would want me drunk. Even in him, for what it's worth. As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Notice that. Guess what? You got faith, and I've got faith. And consider it like a debit card. So... Bob was given a debit card with faith. The good news is, it tells us faith comes by hearing and not the word of God. So every time, right now, God's making a payment into Bob's account. But Bob has a choice where to put that card down. And let's be honest. The greatest regrets of our life were those moments where we were stupid about where we threw the card down. To be honest, sometimes we even knew it was a bad investment. We knew from the get-go that if we were going to put any trust here, we were going to get burned. And somehow, it was like, uh, and we just found our hand there. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? But the good news is, then you're like, well, I'm not going to trust anything. There's no such thing. Because if you don't think you trust anything, you still trust yourself. And you were the one who slapped that thing down the first time. That sounds crazy to me. It's like God's given you a measure of faith. What are you going to do with it? Trust. If you trust Him. Well, remember this. We're all part of the same body. That's so the cool part. We're not a black church or a white church or an old church or a young church or a charismatic or liturgical or whatever. In the end of all, we're parts of the body and some parts are going to be more outspoken than others. Aren't you thankful? Let's face it. Some parts of your body, when they start speaking when they're not supposed to, it's embarrassing for everybody. There's other parts that should get some display, and if they don't get display, people can be suspicious. Because look at it. Every one of you is important. Let me say this. When God puts things together, he has no spare parts. God's perfect. It isn't like in the end, he's like, so what are these parts for? You know? When God puts something together, every part has purpose. And you're one of those parts. You are an integral part. You just may not know it yet. So though 
we are many and diverse. To be honest, still, we're still one body. But there's one part we know none of us are. The head. Because what's clear in the book of Ephesians is that Jesus is the head. Now, without the head, none of the body really functions very well. Or for very long. You pull the head off, you decapitate the head, the rest of the body will not make it. It will for a small period of time, but not long. And I look around and I realize none of you have anything really exaggerated about the rest of you. When we have a yearbook, we look at your head. Because that's the part we identify each other with. It isn't like I look and go, oh, those are clearly Lois's hands. Oh, that's Daniel's feet. No doubt. Well, in this room, I think we actually might be able to pick out your feet in the other's bathroom. For today. You know. But the point is, the head is, the, is our primary identity. Is that okay for Jesus to be our identity? But I've also learned this from years and years of martial arts. If you turn the head, in whatever way the head goes, the rest of the body will follow sooner or later. But when the... Well, how many senses do we possess? Five. How many of them are found on your head? All of them. Your sight, your smell, your taste, your hearing, your sense of feeling. All on your head. Now, from, the head, from below the head, how many senses remain? Sense of feeling. You realize when the church removes itself from the headship of Christ, it will only be led by its feelings. And God's given you a measure of faith, and you are part of the body. Now, that measure of faith is to actually let you trust that God actually could use you. Because I want to remind you, you are not the artist, nor the craftsman, nor the lawyer. There's something in his hands to use. Isn't that awesome? So this is what I want to do. We'll read through this text. And next week, we'll jump in right at verse 6. Does that sound fair? Where we'll actually start going through the te- the. On spiritual gifts. Again, our first list of it. But you can see why we can't just jump into this because the context makes it so much more beautiful. Okay. So here we go. Let me read this to you. And I remind you, God gave you a measure of trust. Be wise with it. And we'll tell, we're told, by the way, for instance, that trials will come in your life to purify that trust. You know what I've learned is a lot of times trials will actually cleanse you from the Christianese. Mm-hmm. Have you learned that? Yeah. You know, you're in a trial and you pray and something goes and it totally gets better and then the next time you're in a trial and you pray and it doesn't go better yet and you're like, well, wait a minute, how did I pray different this time than I did? Like the prayer was the issue. I'm going to say something really dangerous because that's so unlikely. Uh, I don't believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of the one you're praying to. Because the power is not in prayer because if it were, you could pray to the wall. Power is in the one you're praying to. There is power in prayer when you're actually seeking the Lord. The reason I say that is when we go, oh, it's, you know, and it's like prayer becomes an idol, faith becomes an idol. If you just had enough faith. Well, you know what? Faith does not move the hand of God. Faith puts your hands underneath His. They're already full. He just wants to give you the best. A lack of faith will tell God what He needs to do, but a true faith, to be honest, will actually say, all right, God, I... Give me what you got. I don't have to understand it because I'm not going to lean upon my own understanding. But if you really trust the Lord, then guess what? 
He's got something so for you. Just spoke to you. And I can't do Emily's ministry. I can't do Ian's ministry. I can't do Daniel or Bob's ministry. I just can't do your ministries because I'm busy with my own. And I'm having an awesome time doing it. So listen, having then gifts differing, because let's face it, parts of the body will filter toxins. Parts of the body will bring in air. Parts of the body will process that air. Parts of the body will fight things that come in that shouldn't be there. Parts of the body will get the body amped up to get it away from the dog that wants to bite it. Part, parts of the body will cause sweat to remove some of those toxins. Parts of the body will cause the body to vomit to remove toxins a whole lot quicker. Parts of the body will be for the strength and movement and parts of it will be to allow it to rest. Aren't you thankful if, if any one of those parts doesn't work well? Like, I don't know, hypothetically you're jet lagging for a week and a half? Hypothetically. Well, then you actually kind of realize how important all parts of the body are to function properly. Hey, there are parts most people don't see like your, your digestive process, but if it stops working, sooner or later everyone's going to notice. Yeah, well, especially you. We have gifts differing. And God's going to give you gifts because the part that He's made you to be in the body needs gifts to function right. So according to the grace, and I imagine grace is getting what you don't deserve, you say, justice is getting what you deserve, mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. According to the grace that was given to us. Well, let's use them. <clears throat> Prophecy? Well, then prophesy in proportion to your faith. Trust God and prophesy. Minister? Ministry? Well, then let's use our faith in ministering. If you're going to teach, teach trusting God. If you're going to minister, minister trusting God. If you're going to exhort, trust God in your exhortations. Now, if maybe you're like, well, I think I have these words. What we're going to do next week, so you know, is we're going to develop what these words mean according to the original uh, language. And then we're going to go through the book of Acts and, say, and ask, uh, where do you see these things acted out? If we see them in the book of Acts, where would we, where would we see this? Do we see these kind of things? So here's my challenge to you. This week, read the book of Acts. Oh, no, that's 28 chapters. Yeah, it's going to be an awesome read. And just be sensitive to where you see people exercising spiritual gifts. Now, exhorting and exhortation, giving with liberality, for what it's worth. Uh, Apletis means, by the way, uh, without dispersion. In other words, with a single-mindedness. That's the idea of giving. Uh, leading with diligence. That word means with earnestness or eagerness. Spude. I love that word. Spude. Spude. It's kind of like spa. It's kind of an Irish thing. Spude. Spude actually means with eagerness. So you spude. And showing mercy with cheerfulness. Hilaritis. Like hilarious. And then he says, look at When it comes to love, don't be an actor. Isn't that what hypocrisy is? No, it's a very negative connotation here. 
But love needs to be something genuine, without hypocrisy. How do I do that? Well, here's a simple way. Why don't you abhor what is evil and cling to what is good? And be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Love has to be genuine, kind, affectionate, and befriending. Giving preference to one another. Preference meaning you're actually more important than me. I cannot claim to have a selfless love selfishly. That doesn't play out. So you have to be more important than me. So I want to pray for us. This is a good place to start. This is our diving board. Next week, we're going to take it to the deep. And I want us to be uh, a little bit more quick. We'll jump right in in verse 6 about our gifts differing. And notice here we have seven. Prophecy, ministry, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, and showing mercy. That's our first. All right. You ready to pray with me? Are there any questions I should ask? been a lot of exhortation today. Yeah. Which I guess it's one of the things I was exercising my faith. <laughs> 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 I want you to know I'm really, really thankful for having this time with you guys. And I'm really, really thankful for what God's going to do in your lives as you take the pressure off yourself to be the artist and just enjoy making yourself available going, I just want to know what pleases you. Well, snuggle into the Lord and watch yourself. We call it supernaturally naturally. You'll find yourself doing things supernaturally naturally if you just really snuggle into the Lord. And people go, wow, you know I noticed. Lois, you know I noticed. Ian, I noticed. Sit down with Ian and he's all excited about the Lord. He will teach. You don't have to tell him to teach. He will do it. Because he's a teacher. I love that. He exercises that gift naturally. Daniel's an exhorter. You will find times where Daniel is careful, but the moment that someone sits down, he listens and he turns his head a little bit, kind of like a bird, it's really cool, and he leans in because they're important and they know it, and he gives this thing that just challenges you to put into practice what you already know. I've loved watching Daniel do that. And that's only because I've had a little bit of history with these two. Stick around. Don't worry. You're not on the, what do we call that, on the grid. I'm not actually putting you under the scope. But I can't help it as a pastor. You know, and I'll, I'll, I'll clean that up a little bit. I love your honesty and your, and your candor. It is so beautiful, Joan. What day did God make man on? Sixth. The sixth day. So man's first full day of being alive would be the day seven. What did God do on the day seven? This is something we forget. When Ruthie, my youngest, was four, five, she asked me, how many religions are there in the world? I prayed and went, two. There's actually just two. 
There's every other religion where you do the performance and hopefully it's good enough for whoever's judging it to respond in a, a formidable way. Then there's one where God did all the work and wants you to respond. If God created man simply to work, he could have created him on the first day and go, now everything I do, write down. But he made him on the sixth day and then he goes, you know the next thing I'm going to do? I'm going to take the day off tomorrow. Let's just hang out, you and me. If we start with that, everything changes. He called it Eden, Cheden, which means pleasure. We get the word hedonistic from it. I mean, the problem is we hear the word pleasure and we already go, well, that's kind of weird. That's because we gave it to the world. Well, let's take it back. Because God's idea of pleasure was hanging out in the garden with you. Just hanging out. We don't read they did anything. And then he put him in the garden, we read, to tend and to keep it. The Vaden Shemach. Avad means, in the simplest sense, spend your energy. Well, what had he done up to the point? God made things and he told them to eat it. Try it. There's a real hard job. Bring it on. And it was pretty, by the way. Mm-hmm. Good. Although I think it probably tasted like steak. Um, and then it was like, and Shema, to, to protect it. But this was work? Yeah. Anytime my kids are going to help me with something, it's going to be a lot more cleanup. But it makes a memory worth every bit of that. But I wouldn't want them to feel guilty for it. It would ruin the whole thing. So I want to pray for you in that, okay? Because what if we actually started with the idea, remember, if our minds were renewed, we'd be able to then know and approve of that which really pleases him. And you realize, all your performance is not pleasing. It's your surrender. Anything else before we pray? Well, it's a good place to start. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this beautiful time. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. Oh Lord, we as a family here want to lift up Joan to you. And I I, kind of believe Joan's kind of the drummer of the group here. She's speaking what a lot of people are thinking. And she has the chutzpah to do so. So, Lord, I pray for Joan and for all those she represents in this. We live in a world of performance first. We live in a world where we have to fight to gain, but for everything we have to fight to gain, we have to fight to maintain. If we have to work hard to win it, we have to work hard to keep it. And God, I just pray that you would flip that to the right where we recognize oh Lord we recognize that you did all the heavy lifting you took all of our sin and laid it upon your son who made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become your righteousness and when he hung on that cross our bill was paid And when he was buried, all of that shame and guilt was buried with him. And when he rose, all of it was left behind. And Lord, we want to respond, but we recognize there's no possible way we could ever pay you back. That's why it's grace. So instead of trying to pay you back, put in our hearts rather a celebration. 
that celebrates a God who loved us when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, who loved us when we were enemies in our hearts and minds to you, and by nature children of wrath. And you didn't love us because we were so darn lovable. You loved us because you are love. And that never changes. So here around this table, we want to understand your pleasure better and learn how to take pleasure in your pleasure and to delight in your delight as you are a God, the God, who is mighty to save in our midst, who rejoices over us with singing, who takes delight in us and quiets us with your love. Show us, Lord, this is about us responding. In light of your mercy, we offer ourselves. Renew the spirit of our mind. Not just renew our minds, but renew the very attitude of our minds to the core that everything we do, well, we know we are born wanting to be loved, but now that we recognize we are so deeply loved, behold how great and how magnificent the love you've lavished upon us, that now we would seek to love. So, we can't do that in our own strength, the one thing we can do on our own strength is throw ourselves down. You even give us gravity to help. So we throw ourselves down and say, Lord, now bring us to testify as evidence as you need. Pour your spirit upon us to give us the courage to speak when we're intimidated by who we would be testifying to. Give us the faith that is necessary to function as a part of the body like you intend. And Lord, when you do fantastic things through us, may we always remember it's still you and your grace. And not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. But just to celebrate that you are a God who does great things through amazingly ordinary things otherwise but we are extraordinary because of whose hands we are in. May we celebrate that. Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen.